This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for this episode, Christopher Rose. In the 1920s, after the First World War, Cairo, Egypt, was one of the hubs of world nightlife and entertainment. Reports in the press tabloids would detail the glamorous goings-on at nightclubs, cabarets, vaudeville performances by a growing number of of female performers who took to the stage every night. Their infamy, fame, and fortune grew along with the tabloid press, some of which was actually founded and run by the women themselves. This infamous, if now not widely known, period of Egyptian history is brought to life in Raphael Cormac's Midnight in Cairo's the Divas of Egypt's Roaring Twenties, out now from W.W. W. Norton Press in arrangement with Saki Books. Here's my interview with Raf Cormack about his book. Raphael Cormack, welcome to New Books Network. Our traditional first question is about you. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, your academic background, and what led you in the direction of this project in the first place? Uh, yeah, well, so I don't have a sort of traditional background in Middle Eastern studies. I'm, I'm from the UK, uh, grew up there, uh, and my undergraduate degree was actually in Latin and Greek. Uh, so I spent a lot of time reading Greek tragedies and, and Roman history and that kind of stuff. What actually turned me towards towards Arabic was going to Khartoum uh, on a family trip to visit my, my sister who was staying there. And I'd never really, you know, as a kid growing up in the UK, I'd had that much exposure to uh, Arabic culture and literature. I got very interested in it, started learning Arabic uh, in my last year at university, just picked it up in some private courses. Then 2009 went to Cairo. Uh, there was a choice back in, you know, back in that time, people always said you, you either went to Cairo or Damascus to learn Arabic. I decided to go to Cairo mm-hmm. and, uh, and I just really loved it. I, uh, you know, I, I got on with the city a lot and it was, it was really kind of fascinating and, uh, vibrant and whatever else you want to say. I think you could say a lot of things about Cairo, but, uh, it certainly makes an impression. Uh, so I decided to stay on there, and I, I spent a year at the AUC learning Arabic, did an MA in Middle Eastern Studies, and then, and, and I'm, I'm getting to why uh, this is important for this book, uh, and then I did a PhD in Edinburgh in Egyptian theatre, really, and, and I tried to kind of bring in uh, the experience I'd had learning you know, Greek tragedy, uh, and reading all of the the classical texts. So my PhD was in the adaptations of Oedipus that were done in in 20th century Egypt, translations and adaptations mm-hmm. in, into Arabic. So we're talking sort of a lot of the 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 greats of really Arabic theatrical literature of the 20th century, Taha Hussein, Taufi al-Hakim, uh various other uh, George Abiad, the the famous actor did a great Oedipus. Uh, it was quite a Arabic theater in the, in the 20th century, and particularly these adaptations of Greek tragedies were reasonably highbrow, leaning towards a very, very literate audience. I mean, this was a time when uh, Tawfit al-Hakim was adapting Oedipus. This is a time when he was not even really performing his plays to an audience because uh, some of the plays that he performed to audiences had done so badly. 
Um, and so I, you know, that's what I did my my PhD on those kind of plays. Also looking at uh, how Greek culture in general was uh, received in Egypt in the 20th century, ancient Greek culture, and how it sort of contributed to the kind of growing nationalism of the 20th century, anti-colonialism, all of this kind of thing. So you might be asking, so why did I write this book now on the diva, nightclub divas of Cairo? And the answer is really, well, when it came to the end of my PhD, I couldn't really find a way that I wanted to turn this into a book. I mean, I really enjoy it. I think there's some really great texts there and some really interesting things being done. But all of it seemed to just be... A lot of my arguments were repeating arguments that I felt people had made before, particularly in, you know, mm-hmm. where, you know different cultures had come and, and mixed in Egypt in the early 20th century. I'm thinking, you know, the Arabic Freud. Uh, I'm also thinking about uh, Margaret Litvin's book about Hamlet in Arabic uh, mm-hmm. and various other, I mean, about five years ago, lots of people were, were putting out these books, which sort of saying, uh, you know, lots of different <laughs> cultural influences came together in Egypt and were, were turned into something new. I couldn't think really of any way to, to get beyond that. Uh, and really what what happened instead is I got very interested in the scene that kind of Taufik Hakim was ignoring or, you know, sidestepping uh, at a scene that was seemed much more vital and interesting, which is the sort of the more popular theatre that mixed with singing and dancing and all of this kind of uh, stuff in the 1920s and 30s in Egypt, the same time these sort of elite literary figures were adapting their Oedipuses, uh, other people on stages were putting on farces and were doing cabaret shows, nightclub dances, and all the rest of it. That kind of area seemed not only more exciting, uh, but also there was something which I'd always been told really didn't feature in a lot of early 20th century Arabic literary production, which was women at the center of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I, I, I appreciate the book on that level because there really isn't a lot about um, this sort of... Uh, vernacular performance i i guess i would say there's there's been a lot of focus on the sort of more uh, elite literati but um midnight in cairo the divas of egypt's roaring 20s you know i i think the title sort of encapsulates it all um so can can you sort of set the stage for us um what this moment in cairo after the first world war looked like and why it was such a vibrant uh, time for this sort of performance. Yeah, and I think what we really need to bear in mind is, of course, the political situation of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So uh, I always like to start with the 1919 revolution, which, of course, many people will know a lot about. And, and you know, actually, as you were just saying, although there's not been a, an enormous amount of work on this vernacular performance, obviously, in the context of the 1919 revolution, uh, Ziad Fahmi's book on ordinary Egyptians has really, really kind of set the field alight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 1919, to extremely briefly sum it up, uh, the British are at this point officially occupying Egypt and are in control uh, when the First World War ends after a lot of privations in various different ways, something that you know probably more about than me, uh, when the First World War ends Egyptians start thinking that maybe they, uh, like many of the rest of the world, ought to have an independent state. Uh, But the British, in short, don't allow them to do it. Then there is a large revolution. People rise up uh, and people take to the streets. They're met with violence. But eventually, kind of after lots of back and forth, they manage to succeed and get an independent country, albeit lots of strings attached and whereas so Ziad Fahmi for instance focused a lot more on that moment of the 1919 revolution what my book kind of tries to do is say okay what happened after then you know 
now Egypt has this independent country, they have uh, a real kind of sense of national progress being possible, progress, in fact, in general being possible. So this is a time when uh, feminism really starts to be discussed a lot in Egypt. It's also a time when socialism starts to be discussed a lot in Egypt and various other social things. There's a kind of a, a real sense that uh, the future can be in the hands of uh, of ordinary people. So politically, this is like is an extremely exciting time. Couple that with a good uh, economic situation in Egypt and and also comparatively to much of the rest of, say, Eastern Europe, which is going through extremely tough financial times, Egypt becomes somewhat of a magnet for people on the make, people coming from Europe, people coming from elsewhere in the Middle East. Uh, So Cairo particularly becomes not just a really politically interesting place, but a place where lots of people are coming together. And it's in this kind of ferment uh, that a nightclub scene and an entertainment scene, which has been growing since the 19th century, really comes into what people now see as a golden age. And so this was the kind of story that I wanted to tell in the book. What was it like to be in Egypt at at that time, Uh, particularly as, as maybe we'll go on to talk about uh, through the eyes of uh, of the women who were particularly prominent and powerful, and who directed a lot of what was what was happening. Yeah, one of the arguments that that you make is that um, the, the the conventional history of, of early twentieth century Egyptian feminism, which you've already brought up, you know, tends to revolve around. Um, you know, this, the, the, the elites and the upper classes, you know, there's that uh, probably apocryphal story of Huda al-Sharawi, you know, uh, tossing her veil into the mm-hmm. sea as she docks in Alexandria, or possibly it was at the train station in Cairo that the setting seems to shift. Mm-hmm. But um, you argue that there's another history of Egyptian feminism, and I'll quote you here, uh, being written on the stages of Cairo's nightclubs, theaters, and cabarets, uh, end quote. Um, can, can you Touch a little bit more on, on how you you see this this sort of second um, tier feminism uh, fitting into the larger narrative. Yeah, and it's a very difficult question to answer, and it's a very complex one. When I try to sort of tease out various narratives of in the book, I think so. We, when we've had the nineteen nineteen revolution, famous women's protests, also within that, there is undoubtedly. Uh, an extremely important and uh, influential elite feminist movement, uh, if we want to call it that, at least, or mainstream feminist movement that a lot of people have written about. Hadi Shaarawy, obviously the most uh, prominent figure, but but you know there are many others. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to in the book. I I certainly didn't want to say that this is not an important thing. Uh, it, it, you'd be sort of crazy to say that, but. What I wanted to, I mean, what I noticed really was there are all these other extremely prominent and in, uh, influential and independent women who are rising at this time. And why haven't we kind of heard about them in this context? Why have they not been written into this story? And, you know, there it's not it's not for lack of material. You go to and a lot of what I wrote in this book. Is, is based on the entertainment magazines of the 1920s and the sort of the gossip press of the 1920s. And you go there, mm-hmm. their stories are everywhere. Their stories are all over it. It's not because we don't know about these women, uh, but that for some reason they have not been written into the story. Uh, and what partly what I want to do is say they should be. I mean, here are people largely with uh, very little formal education, often from pretty, at least lower middle class families, if not working class families, uh, you know, not the kind of people who often feature in, in histories of uh, of the early 20th century and, and before, but here they are, their stories are everywhere, and they are taking control of their lives in various different ways. Many of them, uh, Badia Musumni, for instance, uh, goes on to own her own cabaret 
exert a lot of her own you know, financial independence and say pretty what would be considered pretty progressive things. So Madiama suddenly, who, who is born herself in uh, in Damascus and whose father dies very young, her family sinks into pretty serious poverty and she herself experiences sexual abuse at a very young age, comes to Cairo in the 1920s, sets up a cabaret, uh, is briefly married to another actor, Nagiba Raheni, uh, but divorces him and then lives from the late 1920s until really the 1950s, an extremely independent life and writes in magazines, you know, that she doesn't want to get married because a woman's life uh, ought to be, uh, you know, ought not to be held back by being married to a man, you know, a, a pretty progressive thing anywhere in the world for the for the 1920s and 30s. So what I wanted to partly do is is put these stories and these these viewpoints, uh, you know, lay them out, and also ask why they haven't been included in the in the canon of um, feminism, Egyptian feminism of, of the mm-hmm. early 20th century. And I mean, this I don't answer specifically in the book because I don't have a specific answer. But I might, if I were to speculate right now, there's I mean, there's two possible reasons one uh you know from opposite ends of the spectrum so one is that uh you could say people in elite feminism in egypt were still extremely class bound and and rather looked down on a lot of these women who were actresses making their money from a you know not a respectable business and there's shades of this in one of the stories that that i tell in the book of Fatima Siri, uh, and it's maybe much too complicated to get into in that much detail. But essentially, she has a love affair with Hodeshah Rawi's son, uh, which mm-hmm. results in in the birth of a child, which he then basically disowns, refuses to uh, acknowledge, refuses to pay child support for, and leaves her on her own. She takes the fights to the courts, supported by the money that she's made singing and, and releasing records and eventually wins and gets the child acknowledged as his legitimate son. And, and he has to pay child support. And then it's, then it's incorporated into the Shahrawi family. And while this whole court case is going on, Fatima Siri suspects that Hoda Shahrawi, uh, the great Egyptian feminist who, as Fatima Siri says, is filling up magazines with all her talk of, of, of women's equality Fatima Siri suspects that Hoda Sharawi rather looks down on her because she's an actress, doesn't want her son uh, to be married to this sort of woman of a of a lower social status, and therefore tries to sabotage the relationship. Now we don't have Hoda Sharawi's side, so uh, it's a little hard to weigh these up, but it but it does seem to suggest that some people within elite feminist circles did not want to include actresses, singers, dancers in their movement. So that's, yeah, I mean, that's one possible reason why uh, why these women have not been included in the canon. To come at it from, a, from another angle, I mean, there are also ways that you could look at these li- the lives of these women and question how feminist their kind of existence was and this is something uh that's very hard to know but you know they were they were making their money in an extremely patriarchal business and in in they had to deal on a day-to-day basis with the patriarchy and they had to make all kinds of bargains they were you know sexualized so to hold up the nightclub industry as this kind of paragon of feminism feels slightly uncomfortable because it's clearly such an industry that is built on on misogyny in a certain way, or at least the exploitation of women. So maybe that's an, another mm-hmm. reason why why people feel uncomfortable including these kind of lives in, in a history of feminism. So I mean that's just two speculations, but uh, I, I think it's I think whatever way you look at it it's there's some extremely interesting and important details of women's lives in in the 1920s and onwards which uh, which have been rather overlooked um 
Yeah, I, I think uh, that 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 sort of discomfort, uh, you know, is an important part of the story. The the performers you write about um, really function on the edge of society and and often transgress its rules and push the boundaries of what was considered socially acceptable. Um, and many of them were quite successful um, as a result of having done so. So how, how were these women, because most of them, as, as you've already described, came from much more humble backgrounds. How were they able to walk this line successfully? It's very difficult to say. I mean, so a few of these women, I mean, I think particularly of, of Munir al-Mahdea, really uh-huh. made their celebrity by the transgression. And the transgression uh, was something that they didn't try and hide in any way. If anything, it was something they tried to play up. So Munir al-Mahdea would hold these extremely lavish parties on her houseboat. She was known as, you know, the greatest poker player in Egypt, would drink, uh, you know, all the finest whiskies and brandies. And would clearly attempt to construct an image for herself as a a sort of decadent and almost debauched, certainly transgressive figure. Another thing that she would, she would frequently do would be dress up in male clothing, have, have photo shoots Mm -hmm. and, and send that into the newspapers clearly as a kind of act of transgression of gender norms in, in some way, exactly what's going on we can debate, but it's uh, clearly she's playing it up and wanting the press to know uh, that she's doing it. So how it's, it's a difficult question. How do we square that with, uh, with all the rest of, of what we know that say, for instance, uh, performance on stage is, is seen as something very close to sex work in a sort of polite society. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, many, uh, there are certainly reports that, that extremely strongly suggest that in cabarets, at least not, if not necessarily in the theaters in cabarets, the, the female performers were sexually available to, to men in the audience. There, there are reports, you know, sometimes that, that, uh, I remember reading one very, very recently, which didn't make it into the book because I read it after I uh, published it, but just saying that, oh, some nightclub had been uh, busted because uh, the women had sexually transmitted diseases, therefore obviously suggesting that um, prostitution was going on in that uh, in that cabaret. But even without the sort of specifics of sex work, performance on stages, particularly in the 1910s and 20s, was seen as close to sex work, even if sex work wasn't going on. So how do we square the fact that these are extremely transgressive things that are going on, you know, often rather looked down on by society, and that instead of trying to sort of cover that up, some people are, are leaning into it, but still remaining these global celebrities and, and Munir al-Mahdeh um, although I mean I don't think there's any su- suggestion that, that she was involved in sex work uh, she certainly uh, plays up her transgressive role and is a massive star not only in Egypt also across the entire Arab world and this part of it gets to the gets to this question about feminism too because there is one argument in telling the lives of, of women like this and, you know, the lives of celebrity women uh, who are sort of exceptional. Uh, one argument goes that a few people are given this exceptional status as kind of a, a lightning rod for everyone else. So, so Munir al-Mahdeh is out there being extremely transgressive, kind of, in order for the rest of society not to ha- be having to do that here here she is in all the newspapers in the uh, you know in the magazines playing the bad girl uh, so that the mm-hmm. so that the nice women at home say can watch her on stage but then go home and sort of be have some kind of purification of that i mean that's what i actually don't buy that as an argument uh, i don't think that's true i, I mean i think it's 
just the mere fact of her public existence and saying uh, some pretty radical things uh, is enough to make her important. And, you know, even if a woman at home is merely fantasizing about the possibility of being Munero Matea without actually doing it, that's still kind of an important thing. Uh, but I can see the argument that if you have some of these extremely prominent celebrity women, they act as sort of a, a safety valve on, on the rest of society. So, mm-hmm. so it's hard to know exactly exactly what's going on when clearly a lot of these women are making their career on being on transgressing societal norms, which again is you know something we're sort of told or not to happen in the early 20th century but it does uh yeah it, it you know in in my own research because uh you know i'm coming at it from the the public health angle but uh i've definitely seen it referred uh to in a number of of documents uh published through the police or the the military authorities that uh you know uh nightclubs you know it's it's pretty much a given uh in their minds that anybody any woman who performs on stage um is supplementing her income uh through sex work um but it 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 obviously it 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 it's much more complicated than that and but at the same time you can't separate this life in the nightclub from that aspect and then also uh uh the sort of inevitable association of, of public performance with with organized crime as well uh gambling sort of underground activities um how did that frame this this aspect of performance um what, did it make it more sort of dangerously fantastical or or tarnish it in any way yeah it's definitely a, a big a major context and one of the things also which i found so interesting in writing this book is this whole space of Esbakea, uh from the 19th century, the, the nightlife district, which which sort of, I guess, gets going as what we would see as a modern nightlife district in the 1870s, 80s, to a serious way. There'd been uh, entertainment there before, but as a place with theatres and cabarets and, and so forth, gets going around the 1870s and then becomes this kind of area which comes to signify so much in the sort of public consciousness of Egyptians. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm thinking partly of Joseph Prestel's book uh, about Berlin and Cairo in the the 1890s when he talks about how by that point, Esbakea has come, has become this kind of cipher for all the things that you're talking about, gambling, prostitution, uh, essentially corrupting the youth of uh, Egypt. And that's a thing that that keeps going uh, throughout the, you know, throughout the 1900s, 10s and 20s. And this whole geographical area with everything butting up against each other. So there is a red light district in Esbakea, very close to, you know, a sort of, British sanctioned couple of roads that, that still get going in the late 19th century. There are hashish dens, there are gambling houses next to theatres, next to the high class opera house where the you know the royal family or the Khadivio family would go and see European performances. Everything is kind of butting up against each other in this reasonably small area of Cairo. And how how that all worked together is very interesting, and how that was sort of both how all these different things under the extremely broad title of entertainment, uh, you know, from gambling to theatre to prostitution, uh, all came together in the same place, and then how that area took on its sort of own uh, life in in Egyptian public consciousness of, you know, a place where people went to throw their money away and, you know, lose mm-hmm. their virtue and, and, and all of those things. And you, you see it keep going uh, really, you know, into the, the films of the 1940s and 50s where they have these scenes in the nightclubs of the, of the wealth, wealthy young Bashawet, you know, 
spending their money on uh, on too much booze and and seeing the nightclub performances. This is whole. That's a, a real image that, that that keeps going for for a very long time, and how it's all thrown together in this one area. It's like it's very fascinating, and how that area worked itself was something that I, I already had a lot of fun diving into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was it was definitely it's um, this entire area was was so concerning to the military officials, and of course, you talk about the so called Battle of the Wazir. Uh, you know, which which takes place right in the middle of of this, which is the Australian soldiers sort of uh, going on a on a bit of a uh, brawl uh, in the middle of the red red light district, um, and then the area really becomes quite infamous. Yeah, and I'm I, I my interpretation. So in the First World War, Cairo becomes this big center of British and as well, you know allied because it's not only brits it's anyone fighting in you know the allied or whatever we call it armies uh and cairo becomes this center not where people fight but where they go and take a break which usually mm-hmm. means going out and getting very drunk causing an enormous amount of trouble and you know still in egyptian culture you know people remember how you know people always talk about how the australians came in and, and caused so many problems you know it's in Nagib Mahfouz. It's in it. It's everywhere. This kind of thing is a um, this reputation remains. But what was interesting to me was what effect this really had on the nightlife of Cairo. One of my arguments in the book, which I don't push that far, but I would be interested to, is that it it really totally changed Cairo's nightlife because the Brits are so worried about their soldiers being corrupted or or whatever it is. They force the nightclubs to close down, uh, or you know, they either have to close down by 10 p.m. or stop serving alcohol. So essentially, they have to close down by 10 p.m. and no one's going to go to a nightclub before then anyway. So they all close down, and it's after this happens, very quickly after this happens, that all of these vaudeville and review theaters rise. So you know, it's just after the the nightclubs get closed down that Nagiba Rahani. Uh, starts really getting success with his Kish Kish Bay character, and then Ali Al Kassar comes along. It's just after the nightclubs close down that Mundir Al Mahdea switches to performing on the stage. So this whole genre of vaudeville theatre, which later takes Cairo in the in the late nineteen tens and early twenties by storm, and be- moves on to become this kind of review theatre mix, Franco Arab review of of comic plays and songs, uh, which is extremely influential. I mean, I would tie its rise to the close of the nightclubs, which come because the British authorities are so terrified of the nightclubs. So it's an interesting sort of little uh, butterfly effect kind of uh, story. Yeah, and they they also uh, are never able to close it down. They try repeatedly to, to move everything to the outskirts of town and it just it won't take um it's a remarkably resilient area um Mm. and and the people who work there as well uh so as the stories progress uh the 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 fame and the notoriety of of these these performers uh is enhanced through recording technology in the press um and i really want to talk for a second here about uh ruzo yusuf who is both a female performer who then founds a publication dedicated to the arts that becomes extraordinarily influential in the the Egyptian press in the 1920s. Uh, how how did this this publication in particular really sort of change the landscape of media and performance and its success, acceptability uh, in in broader society? It's I mean it's Rosal Yusuf's entire story is a kind of is an amazing encapsulation of you know, the Esbacare dream, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. you know, the possibilities that actually were becoming available to women at this time through entertainment. So she, uh, like so many women of the period, she she starts off her life in, in pretty extreme poverty. Her, her very early life is, is a little bit hard to know about. But we do know she arrives in Egypt 
essentially alone as a girl of around 10, 11 or 12 with no money, with nothing, fetches up in Esbakea and over a number of years develops into the one of the great uh, female stars of of the theatre. She starts first as a sort of vaudeville actress and then she moves into more sort of melodramas and, and, and dramas with, with Yusuf Wafi's theatre troupe. And she, by the mid-1920s, she's reached pretty much the pinnacle of any career you can reach, which in itself, okay, it's great. She's she's come mm-hmm. from nothing and reached the pinnacle of a, of an acting career. But what she then does is switch on a, on a dime almost into into the world of journalism, and she tells she the story of exactly how she does that has been told by you know a number of people from different angles, and they all basically agree that you know it's a summer in Cairo. Uh, in the mid 1920s, she's sitting in a cafe talking with uh, with some of her friends about the basic uh, entertainment magazine scene, uh, and we'll go a little bit into that later. But uh, in this period, it's it's extremely vibrant. Yeah, you know, lots of magazines are starting up, lots are closing down. Often they're filled with little bits of gossip. Uh, often the veracity of the gossip is is a little hard to confirm uh but people are eating them up and you know one person will start one and it'll run for a year and start again rosal yusuf decides uh one that none of these magazines are really taking uh acting and art very seriously uh and two that uh also a lot of these magazines don't particularly like her i think that's one motivation for for starting her own magazines she's been so unfairly treated in in other magazines so she decides she's going to start her own which i mean as i say lots of people are sort of deciding at the time but what makes hers different is that uh she turns it into this massive success uh clearly with a lot of hard work you know she really gets out there and gets the subscriptions um but faces also uh, quite a bit of backlash, you know, as we were saying before, uh, the profession of actress is not respected. And there are a number of people, uh, she tells stories of, for instance, going up to try and get a subscription from a from a doctor who lives uh, in central Cairo. And he says, oh, you know, he would love to read the magazine, but uh, he doesn't think he could really hold his head high, kind of, if he had a magazine, an acting magazine published by an actress delivered to his house. So there's there's pushback against her too, but you know she fights and and so forth and really puts a lot of work into it, and the magazine becomes a massive success, keeps going, as uh, as as a lot of people know till this day. I mean, Rosal Youssef, the publishing house and the newspaper still survives, uh, even you know long after her death. Uh, but in the late 1920s and early 1930s, she really is riding high on a on a wave of success and popularity and the magazine becomes very important not only politically it's very pro uh, you know very anti-colonial like pro-independence pro-weft magazine uh, when it starts but also brings a lot of as you say uh, brings a lot of this entertainment scene much more into the mainstream so her her life is kind of uh, with a few bumps along the way, uh, really the model of what can happen, uh, what opportunities were available for women in this period, what uh, you could do with with little education, you know, some ambition and an opening field of, of opportunity. A, a woman could run her own magazine uh, and it could become successful and financially viable and even though a few people might make comments here and there uh now was a time when it was becoming uh yeah possible one of the sort of controversial like, these days uh top ways to describe egyptian society of the early 20th century is to refer to it as cosmopolitan i'm just curious to know where you you stand on that and, and how you feel that that 
this entire industry fits into the larger picture. Yeah, I've had a lot of back and forth and thinking about this whole idea of cosmopolitanism in Egypt, which is which is so strong, not only uh, in Egypt itself, uh, but also you know in the UK too. Uh, there's this kind of misty-eyed uh, romanticism for this time in in the nineties, in the, sorry, in the twenties and thirties, and, and maybe before a time which you know I think it's uh, not unfair to say uh, that that's a sort of colonial nostalgia about that too in the UK. But it's not only there, you know. Also in Egypt, there is this idea that back then everyone was living together and uh, and was getting on great and Muslims, Jews and Christians and Europeans and everyone and they came together and it was this kind of utopian society. Obviously, you know, I think looking at it uh, closer, it was no utopia. I mean, it was no utopia mm-hmm. uh, for women, but it was also uh, no utopia in general. The, the the power differentials, the colonial politics, I don't think we need to entirely go into that. But one thing that kind of inspired me uh, to delve more into this scene was writing by people like Khaled Fafmi, who who says not so you know not so much that okay, this cosmopolitan utopia was a, was a myth, which he sort of which he does say, but he says okay, when we look for cosmopolitanism, why do we need to look in these elite European circles? Why do we need to look in you know the the Daryl, the Kavafi, the um, the Forster, kind of there. They're always the big three who are who are held up. You know, mm-hmm. actually very very different. <laughs> all all three of them had pretty different uh, engagements with cosmopolitanism. But uh, but but Kenneth Fahmy's writing it. You know, he says, well, okay, let's look at uh, some other places in Alexandria and see that actually these could just as easily be called cosmopolitan as cosmopolitan as could. Uh, you know the European quote unquote areas and i'm and I think generally uh, my feeling is uh that you can say the same about the nightlife uh district and nightlife scene of Cairo. This could just as easily be called cosmopolitan, but it's a very different kind of diversity of of power relations you know well you know for one this is an arabic speaking kind of milieu mm-hmm. at least uh, the one that i was looking at there are other performance traditions which are uh, you know which are not you know you could go to the opera house and that's largely european troops performing to european and elite audiences but if you go to nagiba rahani's uh, plays or if you go to fatima rushdie's plays yusuf Raspi or so on these are extremely diverse, uh, both audiences and performers, you know, not only of Muslims, Christians, Jews, people from uh, Shem, people from North Africa, Europeans also performing in an, in an Arabic-speaking milieu. Uh, so one thing which I, I try to say is here, you know, as, as we did with uh, with feminism is like here is a, is another story that you can tell about feminism in Egypt in the, in the 1920s and 30s. Here also is another kind of story that we can tell about cosmopolitanism in in the 1920s and 30s. Again, like feminism, not a perfect one, n- not a utopia. There's uh, there's also there's still power differentials here. Uh, you know, a lot of the people who own the theatres tended to be European, say, and uh, you know, so there's there's that dynamic going on, but it's certainly a different dynamic uh, than the one that we've seen before, and, and in that sense, very interesting. Shifting gears just a little bit, uh, coming out of of academia, how was it writing a book geared for a more popular audience? It was, yeah, like I said, I my uh, my PhD, I just I. I somehow couldn't turn it into a book. I'm not entirely sure why, partly because uh, I, uh, yeah, I felt I wasn't saying anything new, but partly, maybe partly because just the style of academic writing and, and the style of, of popular writing is is so different. And I mean, this is a, a big debate many many people have talked 
have talked about it. I uh, I am not of the opinion that academic writing is all bad. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, although some people might be, I'm not. I mean, there is bad academic writing. There's also a lot of bad um, non-academic writing. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, some, you know, there's some academic books are, are unquestionably fantastically well written, but the style of it is very different. And it was interesting trying to kind of making that shift for me making a shift in which everything is kind of guided by the narrative much more than it's guided by the argument. And you have to have a a sense of what the argument is. But the moment you start trying to make an argument, the editor will cross it out because um, they're like, okay, no, don't, none of this academic stuff. You, you, You have to make the narrative in a way kind of encompass the argument, uh, which is, is, sometimes you know more fun to read and write but does uh i mean it has to be said it sometimes leaves out room for the kind of complexity that academic writing uh can um can hold so i found myself a lot of the time uh writing you know so writing on the one hand this and this and this but actually maybe this and this and this and then and then trying always trying to balance it out and then when you come to the end, you just have to cross out all of the caveats and uh, uh, complexity. Somewhat. Not necessarily complexity, but the caveats and the but on the other hands. And just hope that it all makes sense in the end. And you hope mm-hmm. that kind of the fact of having written out those caveats and then crossed them out is somehow maintained in the writing. Um, but I, I, yeah, I found, I found it sometimes difficult but but very fun and of course the other thing to consider is is when writing for an audience which is uh not necessarily academic uh or uh you have to be much broader in in both the things that you bring you have to explain more <laughs> on the one hand mm-hmm. uh but you have to balance things a lot so one thing that, that for me in the writing of this book was a difficult balancing act was in Anglo-American sort of European popular culture, this is a nightclub scene, this is an entertainment scene that I think the majority of people have no idea even ever existed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas uh, in Egypt, people obviously know it existed and it, it meant a lot to some people, you know, some people today still really know a lot about this scene and are products you know the entertainment industry in in egypt is a product of this scene in the 1920s and 30s somewhat altered but certainly the uh, the dna of it is in there so how to balance both trying to speak to an egyptian audience who has a big connection with this and speak to a western audience who doesn't even know that uh you know ever existed or who she was uh, I'm not sure, and I'm not sure exactly how I balanced it, but it was um, it was fun trying. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 it's, it's a fun read actually, um, because and and like I said, I think this is um, something that a lot of us are aware of, but I don't think uh, we're familiar with the intricacies and just how uh, socially important a, a lot of what you're discussing here. Um, really was at the time and 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 what kind of following a number of these uh these these performers had you know with, with the exception of you know for example uncle Sum because she went on to become the star of the entire arab world but um certainly uh many of the others are are just names uh yeah one hears and, occasionally. and i i hope if i if i've you know added something to uh for the egyptian reader it is those those intricacies and, and how everything really ties together. So, you know, in writing this book, we've talked a few times already in this interview about the entertainment magazine scene uh, and, you know, the recording scene too. So part of the, part of this reason, I think that the 1920s and 30s is such an important time is not only because it was a massive scene, but because it is so well documented in these magazines and, in these records and sort of for the first time 
there's a kind of public celebrity culture when people are picking up on their newsstand interviews with the stars of the time and looking at articles that look into the the houses of the stars at the time and what they ate for breakfast and and all the rest <laughs> of it, which which just wasn't going on in the 1890s, but in the 1920s it is. And I had a lot of really a lot of fun. I could I could endlessly just read these entertainment magazines and look through the stories and and, and yeah, I think particularly for the Egyptian reader who will know some of these names but not necessarily know all of these details. The thing that I, that I hope to have added is really a, an extremely close, in-depth engagement with all these gossip rags, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so our traditional final question, uh, what are you working on now? Oh, I am uh, I'm taking a slight side turn, but not as much as a side turn as you might think. I'm, I'm working on a book on spiritualism in the Middle East. Spiritualism. Okay globally but but particularly in the middle east and it came it did come out of this project because when reading these magazines i noticed just how many sort of spiritualist acts and hypnotist acts and mind reading acts were were also playing at the same time as the you know in the interval between a play there would be a spiritualist act in, in Cairo in the 20s and 30s. And I, I started delving into some of these people, one of whom really particularly stands out is this guy called Dr. Dahish, who was performing a little bit in Egypt in the 1930s, but made a name for himself in Lebanon in the 1940s, sort of starting his own religion. He, he called it a message, hmm. actually. Uh, and actually, actually, I just found out that someone in Egypt has published uh, a sort of novel about him, which I've which I've read a little a little bit of, but actually can't bring myself to read the whole thing until I've finished this piece of work because mm-hmm. it'll uh, it'll just get in the way too much. But some people are interested in him, but not many people really know about him. And then looking into his life, I found this whole history of of, of spiritualism in the Arab world, but also kind of interacting with Europe and America, this whole other, you know, other world, which I've been uh, delving into as well. And that's been, that's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, that sounds fascinating and I can't wait. I can't wait to read it. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Midnight in Cairo, the divas of Egypt's roaring twenties is out now from WW Norton press in arrangement with Saki books. Raphael Cormack, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me.